good morning, Discovery Alliance. My name is not Paul Taylor. Uh, my name is Tyler Valine, and I bring greetings from, and I'm one of the pastors at Sovereign Hope Church, your friends in the gospel. And I could say we are extremely grateful, thankful for you guys for a number of reasons. One being um, some of you uh, came and helped us this summer as we were drywalling uh, our new building, which is the old Coke plant. I think it will forever be the old Coke plant. Um, but we're grateful for your help there. But most importantly, we're grateful for you guys' partnership in the gospel. We're grateful that there is another healthy church proclaiming the good news of the gospel of Jesus, seeing people's lives transformed by the power of grace and laboring on for eternity with us. So it's a privilege to be here with you this morning. Um, my wife and two of my kids are here. The other two are with my parents at Sovereign Hope. And so uh, I look forward to preaching God's word with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can open it up to Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30 is where we'll be today. Uh, and I'm just going to pray for us uh, before we dive into God's word. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity to pause. Uh, you give us rhythms of day and night, morning and evening, light and darkness, so that we might realize the rhythm we need of returning to you, coming to you, repenting, believing, laboring. And Lord, one day as we just sang, the rhythms that limit us here on earth, rhythms of repentance, limits of aches and pains, all those will be removed in glory. But until then, we hold on to our hope. We pray that you are honored in the words of my mouth, in the hearts that hear this message. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have you ever realized a moment where your experience doesn't match up with your reality? Maybe you're someone who uh, constantly hangs out in group events and you notice someone and you wonder if that person is upset with you because of how they responded. Or maybe they didn't respond to your question the way you thought they would and so you walk away worried that you said something wrong or they have this bitterness in their heart. All the while, um, this person is completely unaware of what you think and is totally at peace with you. Your experience didn't match up with your reality. Or if you're like me, you can eat a basket full of chicken wings and still feel hungry, even though your experience is also coupled by the reality you ate far more than enough calories to get you through that day. A few weeks ago, Pastor Paul told me um, that you guys uh, heard him mention the idea of preaching the gospel to yourself. And this side of glory, because of what sin has twisted and perverted in our world, we have realities all the time where our experience, though true, we really feel it, doesn't match up with what is true in reality. We live in a broken world with broken bodies and broken hearts, which means we need to wrestle to understand our true felt experiences in light of the true realities of what God has done to redeem us and save us in Jesus Christ. And today we're going to get a wonderful picture of what it looks like to preach the gospel to yourself by examining the words of a man named Agur one of the authors of Proverbs. And Agur today, we kind of open up his diary and we find him in the middle of a thought. And this thought is him preaching wisdom, the summary of wisdom, biblical truth to himself. In other words, what does it look like to preach wisdom to yourself when you feel weary, when you feel weak, when you feel foolish? Our world speaks often to our emotional state today. And so what do we do with that? Are we to be entirely led by our felt but true emotions? Or are we to entirely suppress our felt but true emotions? 
If those are the only two options presented to us, we're going to find ourselves consumed with either anxiety or crushing depression. But today, Agur, in all of his humanity, holds out for us the hope of preaching wisdom in the gospel to yourself, even when it seems that everything you experience is less than good news. How do you remind yourself of the promise of God when it seems the promise of sin is more real and helpful? How do you preach the gospel to yourself when it seems that everything outside the world is dangerous to your heart? And that sometimes even it seems obedience is dangerous. You feel trapped and alone. all who are like him, who seem so distressed, so discomforted, so anxious, that they're teetering on the edge of either turning entirely to the world for comfort of what to do with our experience, or turning inward to God's word, but being discontent all the while while they stand on the edge of a knife. But in his method of processing his emotions, we see a healthy pattern for ourselves. And we're going to see this process of preaching to ourselves today in three ways. And our main point is going to conclude all that. Our main point this morning is that the wisdom of the gospel gives us freedom to feel, space to consider, and faith to hold on. The wisdom of the gospel gives us freedom to feel. We're going to look at Proverbs 30, verses 1 through 3. Gives us the space to consider. That's verses 4 through 6. And then finally gives us the faith to hold on in verses 7 through 9. So would you read with me our text today? And perhaps you can notice those three distinctions even in Agur's text. The words of Agur, the son of Jaka, the oracle. The man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. My wife has this verse on the fridge for some reason, and I'm not sure why. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One who has ascended to heaven and come down, who has gathered the wind in his fists, who has wrapped up the water in a garment, who has established all the ends of the earth. What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you, and you be found a liar. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. And so let's begin today by camping out on verses 1 through 3, which is where we see our first point today, which is the freedom to feel. I don't know if you've read biographies, but some biographies are written dryly and meant only to inform. But here in Agur's biographical sketch, he doesn't only want you to know. In fact, we don't exactly know the circumstances of what he's going through, but he wants you to feel it, doesn't he? Did you notice how he opens? Twice he says, I am weary. I am weary, O Lord. I am worn out. If you read beyond that, we see a consensus that he feels stupid, he feels ignorant, he feels foolish, and he feels alone. In other words, what Agur is wrestling with is not only a physical worn-outness, but an emotional 
and a relational fatigue that leaves him feeling completely consumed with this burden. And perhaps you've been there. Perhaps you've felt and expressed a similar sort of emotions. Have you ever woken up and your first experience before you even get out of bed is, I am weary, O Lord. When your devotions butt up against getting the kids ready for school, when sickness interrupts your prayer life, when exhaustion climbs into your social calendar and you say, I am too worn out. I'm not wise enough to know what to do. I'm too stupid to figure all this out. And if we're honest, this might be the most common confession we have in our lives, even if we don't admit it. But that's what makes this passage so profound. Here we see a pattern of what to do when you embody these experiences. It's interesting to note that Agur isn't refusing to repress all of his emotions, one of the false worldly claims that we should do. But neither is he letting his emotions lead him entirely, which is the other solution our world offers. He is, though, we see here, laying it out in a way which is really intense. Larry led you guys in song today. Can you imagine if when we conclude this song, Larry gets up and he says, guys, I'm going to introduce a new song to you. The opening line is, I'm weary, stupid, and alone. Please stand. That would seem intense. But this is the word of the Lord. This is what the Holy Spirit has preserved for our sake to look at a man who is at his end with his emotional experience. And here we see the importance. Do you see to whom he is bringing his emotions? He's bringing them to God. You see, many of us, we tend to do one thing or the other. First, we bring our emotions willingly and honestly to others, but never to God. We bring our frustration, our exhaustion, our weariness to, to Facebook, social media, to our Bible studies, to our spouses, and to our friends. But the first place the Lord wants us to bring this is to himself. The God who created you knows your emotional state. He wants it. Why? Because he cares for you. You see, sometimes we let our doctrine of God's sovereignty repress our doctrine of man's responsibility and God's kind compassion. You see, we worship a sovereign God who already knows. He's numbered the hairs on your head the days of your life. But what's really interesting is when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he says, your Father in heaven knows what you need before you ask it. What does he say next? Pray then like this. Even though God already knows perfectly the experience of your heart, that same Heavenly Father wants you to bring those experiences to Him. Peter tells us why the anxious, often reactive Peter says in 1 Peter 5, to cast your anxieties on the Lord because He cares for you. It's a good thing. It's a biblical quality of a healthy church that we bear one another's burdens. And well, I'm going to have to rush out of here afterwards because we have a congregational members meeting where we are intentionally going to bear burdens and talking about our budget and membership and church discipline. I imagine that's something you have here. We ought to do those things, but where is your issue of first importance? To whom do you run? Secondly, we often bring our emotions uh, to the Lord in a dishonest way instead of an honest way. The first mistake is bringing your emotions only to men. Isaiah 8 says that that's like bringing your problems to those who have no dawn. There's no relief there. But secondly, maybe we say, okay, I need to go to the Lord. What do we do? 
we put on some makeup, get some breath spray, we'll try to act like everything's okay. I don't mean to stereotype, but I am a man, and therefore that's the only experience I can speak from. This seems to be a legitimate problem for males. We come to the Lord and we go to him in a faux reverence, as if everything in our life is okay. That we are strong and sufficient, everything's going according to plan. But behind our relationship with God is a reality of weariness, of weakness, of confusion, frustration, or sin. And we sometimes gussy up our bodies to go to to the Lord in prayer, thinking that God will be impressed by our strength. Look at me, I have no need. But the truth of the matter is, is God is not impressed with dishonesty. We do not need to hide our emotions from the God who created us. The God strong enough to create in a word and redeem through his word, Jesus Christ, does not need to be protected from our emotions. Jesus, the perfect, spotless son of God, went before the Father in his days on earth and was so bold to ask for the cross to be removed, faithfully, sinlessly, to plead because of Luke, what Luke says in Luke 12, 50, the great distress of the baptism which he was looking forward to. And somehow, even with the witness of Jesus himself, we have come to some false conclusion that we ought to exhibit insincere stoicism when we come before that we shield our true state, that we don't let him know what's there and we give him this pre-plated meal. But we need to bring our emotions to the Lord, which is what Agar is doing. And this, though, is distinct still. It's not simply a worldly sort of vetting. Consider how David does this and consider where he lands the plane every time. This is going to be in Psalm 4, verse 1. Again, listen to David's tone and ask yourself, have I ever prayed like this? Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. And then skip to verse 4. He says this, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds. Be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. If you have a Bible open, you skip down a few verses to chapter 5. Consider verses 1 through 3. Give ears to my word, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King, my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you, and I watch. So here in Psalm 4 and 5, David, man after God's own heart, brings his distress, and it's almost as if he grabs the ear of the Heavenly Father and says, Answer me! Listen to me when I call to you. And he gives vent to weariness, to anger, and to frustration. But where does it land? In humble submission to the Lord. A beautiful illustration of this is in Isaiah 37, where the army of Assyria is coming to wage war on Israel or on Judah. And uh, the, the king of Assyria sends this really I'll grind your bones to make my bread letter to King Hezekiah describing what he's going to do to Judah when he gets there. And Hezekiah, if you are in the King James, is shooketh. He is fearful. He is anxious. He is at his end. And I love what he does. He takes the letter that causes him 
so much turmoil. And he runs to the house of God and he lays it open on the altar and he steps back to watch. If you look back at David's words, he says, I prepare a sacrifice for you and I watch. What begins as, are you listening to me? Do you even care? Do you see what's going on? He says, be angry. Do not sin. Sit in silence. And giving vent to God with our emotions has this calming effect where we begin to safely process what we're feeling in light of the God who knows exactly your heart. When was the last time you brought your emotions before God? Were your experiences with lust, fear, worry, and sorrow were honestly vocalized before God? Because notice how helpfully reorienting this process is in verses 2 and 3 of Proverbs 30. Surely I'm too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. You see, it's exhausting to think about life in this world. How many times are we frustrated when we can't find a way forward? How many times are we upset because we're foolish, that we made a poor decision because we're not omniscient and all-knowing? How many times do we see real conflict, real challenges in relationships, parenting, politics, and discipleship, and our only cry is, I'm not wise enough. I don't know what to do. But if you'll notice in verses 2 and 3, Agur takes a crisis of knowing of how to think and act in a broken world he makes it into a crisis of relationship. Do I know the Holy One? Do I have knowledge of God? When we feel exacerbated and we feel confused, the biggest question is not what we don't know. Newsflash, there's a lot we don't know. The real question is who do you know? And this is where the process of preaching the wisdom of the gospel to us becomes a distinctly Christian exercise. Our bodies, our world, our relationships, and our hearts are all over the map. They're fickle. They're changing. And this seems to progress at the pace of nanoseconds. But the Christian has the unique privilege of understanding all that changes in light of the God who doesn't. The one who rules and reigns over all things. There is a sandbar in the midst of the rapids of life where should we make our way to it, we can stand on solid footing and consider with sobriety and clarity what goes before us. And that sandbar is the knowledge of God himself. And this is our second point this morning. Having taken our emotions to God, that is to consider ourselves, we're now given space to consider this great God. This is our second point, and we see uh, uh, Agur model this rhetorical examination of his own heart in verses, uh, in verse four. He says this: "Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has wrapped up the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name, and what is his son's name? Surely, you know." So after laying out who he is, I am weary, I am weary, I am worn out, I am foolish, I am stupid, and I do not know you. What does he do? He turns through a series of questions that are designed to remind him of the God he does know. Four questions followed up with, surely you know, as if 
He already knows the answer. And so do we. Who is this God who is so cosmically unlike us? We are worried about what we might eat. Here is the God who has breathed the world into existence. I have a friend who's another pastor in town, and he says when he's counseling people, there's often a time to listen to yourself. That's what we saw in the freedom to feel. But then there's a time where we begin to stop listening to ourselves and to start preaching to ourselves. And that's what we see here. Agar interrupts himself with these hypothetical questions which he already knows the answer to. And this is a really similar experience to, if you're familiar, the book of Job and Job's sorrows there. In Job, he is a righteous man and he's afflicted in many ways. And his friends come alongside him to try and help him understand what's going on. And these friends have all these chit-chats. And this, so this is Job actually falling into that first problem is he's going to all of his friends, which is good, without ever going to God, which is bad. And if you've read Job, this is what not to do in your emotions. Because they have all these chit-chats about theology and righteousness and cause and effects. But after dozens of chapters and four knuckleheads going back and forth, trying to make sense of their felt experience in their world, God finally speaks. And look at what God says in Job 38, verses 1 through 7. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, and I will question you, and you make it known to me. Now see if you can hear the echoes of Agar here. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who is it who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning star stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? For two chapters, God continues this line of questioning. Who were you? Or who are you? Where were you? Tell me if you know. And then Job finally speaks in Job chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, and notice how he responds. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand upon my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer. Twice, but I'll proceed no further. You see, God's goal in the midst of Job's trial was that Job would realize that God is wise beyond measure, even if we can't understand it. That he is supreme in his care and purposes, and as long as we cling to him, we will get exactly where God wants us. But did you notice the wisdom of Agra here? And this is the beauty of the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is wisdom beforehand. It's you learning through the wisdom of others so that you don't have to learn through your own mistakes. The book of Job starts with four guys thinking they could figure things out apart from God. And then God finally shows up to humble them. But here Agar comes to God confessing his lack and then begins to proclaim God's supreme wisdom Here's the ability to learn in four verses what it took Isaiah, or Job, 40 chapters to learn. That we need to examine our life first and foremost from the vantage point of God. This is the key to all biblical wisdom. Proverbs 1 opens with this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. If you want a summary of what biblical wisdom is, it is this. It is beginning to orient everything we encounter in this life 
not based first off of ourselves or our changing world, but based off the will and the revelation and the works of the perfect God. To preach wisdom to ourselves is to know that God is faithful, even if we can't understand why. And here again, we see the crisis of knowledge solved with the promotion of relationship. All these questions that he's asking in Proverbs 30 culminate with this. What is his name? And what is his son's name? In other words, he's not just calling us to intellectual assent, to check off boxes like, I understand God created the world in seven days. I understand wind is not just this phenomenological thing that God's in charge, but his point is drawing you into a relationship. But what is his name? Do you know him? And this is the climax of Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6 calling us to know this man, this is what Edgar says, every word of God. What God? The God who ascended to heaven and came down. The God who gathered wind in his fist. The God who wrapped up waters in the garment. The God who established the ends of the earth. The God who you know proves true. He is a shield for those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Here is the God who is above all things. The God who fastened the earth and while you might feel stupid, ignorant, alone, and foolish, this infinite God has spoken to us. This God has given us his word. You see, to think that you can reconcile everything that happens in our world and in your life according to your understanding is a miserable existence. But that's what we try to do. We try in the midst of our emotions to say, yeah, but what does this mean? How can I understand this from my perspective? God wants us to seek understanding. He's not asking us to be blissfully unawares. But here is the privilege of reconciling everything we encounter in this world, not according to our limited and changing self, but according to the unchanging and unlimited God of Scripture. We don't need to know everything to have peace with God, or we don't need to know everything to have peace if we know the God who gives us peace, a God who is trustworthy in his word in the midst of times and circumstances that seem hard to understand. And where do we meet this God? Again, Agar is layering. That's how Proverbs works. It's layering this stuff. Where do we know this God? In his word. His word which always proves true. His word which some translations say is tested. Others say is pure. His word which in every way, regardless of our experience, is reliable to give us shelter when we feel buffeted. Not only do we see his word, but Edgar says, do you know his son? What is his name? What is his son's name? And certainly... Agar is perhaps referencing himself as the writer of this to remind himself through the whole host of scripture, we know that there is an important connection between God's word and his son. In verse 4, Agar quotes Deuteronomy, asking who has ascended and descended into heaven. Paul picks up this same passage in Romans chapter 10, verses 6 through 9, where he says this. And see if you could hear Agar in here. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. This is the word of faith that we proclaim, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will 
who is the one who has ascended and descended? Jesus Christ, the Son, the Word of God. Agar asks, who has gathered the wind? Who has wrapped up the waves? In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus stills the storm with the Word. And look at what his disciples say after witnessing this miraculous event. Matthew 8, verse 27. The men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this? who has proven in uncertain circumstances that he is trustworthy, the one who wrapped the wind and the waves, the word of God, his son, Jesus Christ. Agar asks, who has established the ends of the earth? Paul says this in Colossians 1, 15 through 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Who established the ends of the earth to show that there is something steadfast in the midst of all that is not? The word of God, Jesus Christ, the Son. Agar says, every word of the Lord proves true. The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by his word of power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Who is the word by whom the Father has vindicated all of his truthfulness, reliability, and refuge-producing power? Christ, the Son. So what does it look like to preach the gospel to yourself? It looks at the Son and realizes that God is reliable and trustworthy because in Jesus Christ we see his faithfulness. Faithfulness when it seems dark, when it seems when it seems that hope itself is nailed bloody and dying on a cross, even there, God's word proves true. You see, when we feel insignificant, weary, and confused, we find refuge by running to the sun. When we have found refuge in the sun, when we see what Jesus has done, that he has proven that in all of our human experiences, in all of our suffering, in all of the things that are out of our control, that this God is still faithful, we can then run back to his word, and we can cling to this, and we can say, I know this is true. Why? Because I saw it on the cross. Because an empty tomb speaks to the promises of new life. Because a well-worn cross reminds me of the burden of sin. And we could say, I know that all of this world is disorienting. But God's word is true. When my experience causes confusion, the word of God holds out hope. And Agar gets in front of us here. Because if we end up with the word of God, there's often two things that we will do in the midst of this. And he gets at this in verses 5 and 6. Every word of God proves true. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. He knows when we encounter experiences which are 
burdening, when God feels distant, that we will do one of two things. First, we will try to add to God's word. And many of us aren't sitting here being like, well, I have new scripture, new revelation from God, and this trumps it. But you know what we often do? We make promises in the midst of our anxiety and our experiences, which God never makes to you. We go to people who are suffering, and we say, it'll be fine. You'll get through this. But that's not a promise we can make this side of the grave, can we? There are martyrs. There's our Lord, our Lord himself, who died obeying Jesus. We come up with these formulas of if I pray here, if I give here, if I show up here, then all of my problems will go away. God has promised that all of your promises or all of your problems will be removed, but that is in glory. And sometimes we are frustrated in our experiences because we add to God's word promises that he himself never makes on life this side. Or secondly, we look at God's word and we say, that's a lie. We look at the promise of running to the refuge of repentance and obedience and we say, I don't believe that. I don't believe that will bring me peace. I don't believe that will be safe. And we run instead to the promises of sin. That's where Adam and Eve in the garden were tricked into thinking that it was the promise of the devil that brought them greater satisfaction than the word of God. You see, the task of the Christian, please don't ever believe this, there's almost this appeal in the Christian church that as Christians we blindly have faith, that we believe in blind faith. No! Our God is too great a God to leave us to blind faith. He has acted in history. He has taken on flesh. He was witnessed on the cross. His empty tomb is really empty. He lived for 40 days afterwards performing miracles and proofs. We do not have blind faith. For God wants you to know his word is true. This is what we must reconcile ourselves with. If you are in here today, this is the point of reconciliation. If you have never come to God, if you are stuck in thinking that his word is always against you and never for you, that the promise of sin can provide, then you have believed the greatest lie, and it is a lie, have no shame, all of us are born into. But we can repent. We can confess where we thought we were God, and we can run to Jesus. Our faith looks at those who are in the church just like us. This is what I love here is many of you can stand up and say, I was there. I tasted sin. It was painful. I ran to Christ. He was faithful. This is the beauty of biblical faith. And here's why we need it. Because we can acknowledge our fickleness. We can run to, to the cro cross. But Agar prays a dangerous prayer here in conclusion. This is our final point this morning. This is the faith to hold on. Read with me Proverbs 30, 7 through 9. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. 
So this is really interesting. Just on, if you're ever on like Bible Jeopardy or something like this and you win a million dollars, I now get part of it. Okay? Um, this is the only prayer in the whole book of Proverbs. Right here. So we, should, we ought to be paying attention to Agur's prayer. And it's an uncomfortable prayer. Because it is a prayer for which the only thing Agur is asking for, the only thing which preserves the undoing of knowing God, is a prayer of dangerous, desperate reliance on God. After seeing the sufficiency of God's word, he asks that falsehood and lying would be put far from his mouth. He knows that we are prone in our weakness to invent false promises, to cling to our own word. He knows we want to disregard God's word. And so he prays, as I pray you do, that those would be put far from us. Can you imagine such a world where we have no falsehood and lying in our relationship to God's word? Where we only know that this is true. Where our experience is finally and perfectly matched with reality. Brothers and sisters, if you are saved by grace through Jesus Christ, that is one day our reality in glory. All of the things that pull at our heart, all of the temptations to sin, all of the war of living in a broken world will be removed, and we will finally, freely, always, only obey for joy. But we are not there. And so how do we fight side of the grave. Look again, verses 8 and 9. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. We often pray against poverty every person in here has prayed at some point for your finances but how many of you are so bold to say as give me not riches the faith to hold on to the truth of the gospel is a faith that realizes that it is sometimes God's kind mercy to strip away or withhold from us the rich comforts of the world so that we might see what truly comforts and what is truly reliable Jesus preaches us this sort of humble reliance in Matthew chapter 6, verse 11, where he's teaching us to pray, and he says this, Give us this day our daily bread. How many of you have heard the Lord's Prayer before? Okay, great. Then we don't have any need to talk about this, right? You know what we hear when we read that? We think in terms of Costco. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to come home with... 10,000 granola bars for a nickel. I can, if I ever feel doubtful, I'll just open the pantry and I'll see all that you have stored up for me. That's not this prayer, is it? Jesus isn't calling us to look at storehouses of immediately tangible physical provision. Instead, sometimes it is the Lord's will that we stare at the empty table in faith. Faith that God will provide He knows that when life is good, when banks are full, when relationships are robust, that when provision is near, we often deny the Lord. Why? Have you seen my pantry? I don't need to pray. I've got Nutrigrain bars. 
say to myself, I don't need the Lord. My wife and I are doing great. And so Agur knows if his greatest hope is that he would know the Lord, there is nothing that brings up the fearful confession of who is the Lord than misplacing our hope. In Exodus chapter 5, Moses goes before the most powerful man in the world, the biggest Costco supply chain there's ever been. And he says to Pharaoh, God wants his people. Pharaoh looks at this weird desert wanderer who he once knew as merely an adopted member of his family. And he looks at himself, he looks at Moses, and he realizes one thing is not like the other. And look at what he says. And again, think of Proverbs 30, verse 9. Exodus 5, 1 and 2. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? That I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. If the most painful thing that we've already seen in Proverbs 3 is that we would try to process life without knowledge of God, it is here that we see that that God might spare you that burden by afflicting you in circumstances wherein your only hope must be the Lord. Because everything See, my wife and I miscarried our third child. And when my wife was pregnant with our fourth, it appeared that we were miscarrying her as well. We were on a road trip, pulled off on an uh, off-ramp in California, went straight to an emergency room. And in that moment, I sat. We had just handed off two screaming, confused kids to people we had never met at a local church down there. And I processed what gave me hope in our first was this. We had good doctors. We had an emergency savings account. We had good insurance. The doctor would come. He would remove the baby. He would treat my wife. I would submit the insurance bill. They would reduce the cost, and my emergency savings account would pay that. We'd be okay. But the doctor came in that day, and he exposed in my heart the question, Because that doctor gave us the most devastatingly wonderful news. That baby is still alive. And I say, great. A good doctor will do something. He'll submit the bill to insurance. He'll make it affordable. And I'll pay for it. He said, the baby's alive. There's a massive hematoma surrounding her. We can't do anything for it. If the body begins to pass the hematoma, abort the baby, and you'll miscarry. And we can do nothing. This was 90 weeks in. Every day, for eight months, we went to the Lord for our daily bread. Our church joined with us. Nancy Hoffner came and mopped floors for us because Sarah couldn't do anything. Nothing to agitate us. And eight months later, 
Ellie, he's here today. He's born. Her name is Ellie, the Greek word Elieo, of mercy. That was our prayer. But Ephesians 2. God, God be merciful. But I appreciate that, and we are so grateful for that. But, but here's the truth. For many people, eight months later doesn't come. We will orchestrate funerals with caskets far too small. We will have dreams, friends, and loved ones which do not make it, even with the gospel believed. But I also know that those believers who have tasted that who have taken Eggers' prayer, give me neither poverty nor riches, but feed me with the food that is needful for me. That though it seems scarce, though it seems distant, though it seems fearful, that the food that God gives is sufficient. That they say with David, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You see, make no mistake, we can stop and feel and we can be given the space to consider and we can still not get what we think we want. And yet in the midst of this, we see that it doesn't mean, it's not a formula, do what's right, think what's right, and all the hardships go away. But it means that we will make it by continuing to see that God is faithful, by saying the every word of the Lord proves true. Not just the ones, he says every word, not just the ones that we want to be true but also the ones that look like our Savior's life. Of weeping, of distress, of death itself. But we will walk away and we will say, God is faithful. Why? Because we've seen the empty tomb. Because we know that even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that there is one who walks with us. Preaching wisdom to yourself says, this is hard. I am weak, I am weary, I am too stupid, but Jesus, you are infinitely good. And today, right now, in this moment, give me the food I need. And it is sufficient. We have seen in the end God's promise in Christ. We know he will never leave us, for he has given us his Holy Spirit. So we come to God and we ask him in desperate reliance, even when our true experiences don't match up with our true reality. And we say, give me you. Take from me everything. But help me know this day. Here is our hope for you today. If you don't know this, Jesus, come talk to you. Levi, right? Who's up here? Talk to some of your other elders. They'd love to help you with that. If you are one who has experienced the shielding power of the word in hard circumstances, do not stay quiet in church. Share that with others. Encourage the body. Encourage one another with those words. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that every word of God proves true, that he's a stronghold for all who take refuge. But Lord, that is an uncomfortable reality. And it's so much easier to hope in things that are not you. But Lord, we thank you that in our fear,
fear, in our sorrow, in our anxiety, we can bring it to God in openness. We can stand on the sandbar of the knowledge of you, and we can look at the cross of Christ and say, not forsake those whom you have